how thankful I am for those of you that have just come up to me random this morning and, and just said that they would be praying for me through this time. I was trying to think of when was the last time I preached in a church, and I'm thinking it's maybe six, ten years, I don't know. So uh, looking forward to the opportunity. Preaching on this chapter, I've, I've mentioned to a few people, is sort of like ordering a steak and being given a steer. In many cases, still moving. <laughs> This is a very agricultural chapter. There's a lot of discussion in here about seeds and sowing and reaping and wheat and tares. And I was thinking, even the last thing, words we hear before the per, a person comes up and preaches, the grass withers and the flower fades, even then, another agriculture reference. We don't relate to it as much because we are not as agricultural as we used to be, even here in Middle Tennessee. So to make it a little bit more understandable, I will reference during the course of this message to what many of us can relate to, the suburban lawn. (laughs) And in the course of our time together, we're going to be doing a lot of journeying. We're going to be journeying from the fields of Israel to the lawns of Tennessee with a side trip in my grandfather's produce truck in South Georgia. And I plan to finish this, this message this morning with a very blunt summary of what I think of all you people in light of this passage, so be prepared for that. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to proclaim your word. Thank you, Father, for the richness of this chapter. My goodness, books have been written about this chapter. Weeks-long sermon series have been done on this chapter. Father, I just pray that this brief overview will do justice to your word. I pray that anything that is said that is contrary to your word or to your spirit will fall to the ground as if it had never been said. Let only your voice be heard during this time. For it's in your name that I pray. Amen. A lot was going on in Genesis 12. I like to look at previous chapters to see what sets the stage. Chapter 12 in Matthew was an enormously active time for Jesus. He starts out by confronting a very warped view of the Sabbath that divorced the necessity of doing good from religious ritual. The Pharisees wanted to destroy him on account of it. He heals someone with demon possession. He gets accused himself of being demon-possessed. He refuses to perform a sign when asked. And the chapter closes with a beautiful expanded view of family that goes beyond earthly times, ties I should say, that beautiful view of family that says, who is my mother, who is my brother, who is my sister, he that does the will of my father. Significantly for our purposes this morning in verse 33 of chapter 12, he sets the stage for this chapter, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Notice what he doesn't say merely that the tree and the fruit is good or bad in and of itself. Look at his word choice. He says, make the tree good, make the tree bad. Some outside source determining which is which. And of course, Jesus helpfully says in the next verse, the source for the people he was addressing in that verse by referring to them as a brood of vipers. He made it very clear where their source was. So now here we are in chapter 13. And many have taken note that from this point, after chapter 12, 
Jesus begins to talk more and more in parables rather than directly stating truth. More and more in parables. And we'll see a little bit why as we get into it more. So here is Jesus. Here's the scene. Facing the crowds from a boat. And like the parable that he's getting ready to relate, this sower is preparing to sow his seed. I never realized getting ready for this message how much nostalgia from childhood would bleed into it in the preparation. I found myself thinking about how my dad sowed his seed. I've got this vision of him with his little canvas bag, probably fertilizer. You know, this is back in the days when you drank from hose pipes and you rode in the back of the pickup truck, and nobody thinks of the danger of taking a bag full of fertilizer and spreading it around, but that's what dad did, I'm sure. But I see this vision of dad with his canvas bag walking through the field, taking a handful of it, holding it just tight enough that it doesn't all fall out, but just loose enough that he can spread it, and doing this all the way around, sea going everywhere. And of course, in our, the lawn in our house, we're a lot more modern than that. I've got this fancy little green gizmo that I dump my weed and feed in, which is the name of the stuff that I use, and it does what it says. It's supposed to kill weeds, grow grass, put the weed and feed in, turn my little crank, and watch the little seeds just go everywhere, randomly. The ground, it goes into the ground. The seed goes into the branches. I see a few seeds around the sidewalk. Every once in a while, it seems to go into the ground, which is always a good, good thing. So I found myself asking this question. If Jesus is truly the master sower, and he is, why was the seed scattered Why was the seed not strategically placed? What is the point in sowing in so many places where it's not going to bother to grow? grow? And aside from the obvious answer, which is the good Christian answer, that God is sovereign over his kingdom and he has the perfect right on how he conducts his kingdom, that's typical to what we say as parents when we tell our kids, when they ask us why we're doing that, because I'm your father and I told you so. Both of those answers are correct. Both of them are right answers. It's right and legitimate, but sometimes obedience is helped when we understand the why behind the reasons. And taking the time to explain the why can make the obedience a lot more understandable for us. This is a whole other subject that you could preach a message on, but I find the answer in two simple words that you may have heard of before. Common grace. Common grace is not a term that's specifically used in Scripture, but it is one that describes how God orders His affairs over His creation regardless of the creature's relationship to Him. And you have many examples in Scripture. Genesis 39.5, it tells us that Potiphar, the Egyptian, was blessed for Joseph's sake. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 45, he makes the sun and the rain fall on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Luke 6, 35, he extends kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. And by the way, I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to be doing a lot of summary because if we've got a big chapter to cover, if I read all of chapter 13, half of my time would be gone. Just, just so you know, I will be commentating more than quoting verses. 
Like the scattering of seed, look at the wide dispersion of blessings in these verses. To the evil and the unkind, seed dispersing. Just like my wheat and feed. Just like the seed from my dad's bed. The question is often raised, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? There's a flip side to that question. It's repeatedly asked in Job, and it's asked a lot in Psalms, particularly by David. If God is good, why do the evil prosper? It's not an exhaustive answer in light of everything I've just explained to you about common grace. But consider that in the mercy of God, these common grace kind of blessings may be the only mercy that the lost will ever receive. It may be the only heaven they will ever experience. Particularly in Joseph's case, what seemed like blessings wasted on an Egyptian were only a small part of how God orchestrates his larger purpose of preserving his people. Wasted, not wasted seed, just serving a different purpose. So now in verses 4 through 8, we're dispersing our seed. Again, I won't read it, it'll just summarize it. Seed thrown by the wayside, devoured by the birds. Seed thrown on stony ground, quick growth that doesn't last. Good ground, lush, abundant growth. And before we get to the interpretation though, verses 9 through 15 as a side question from the disciples. Why the parables? Why the vagueness? We serve a God that loves to work in paradoxes, in case you haven't noticed that. And paradox is just a fancy term for something that looks self-contradictory, but turns out to be a profound expression of truth. And we see it all, the, all over Scripture. The first shall be last, die to self to live for God. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the least. All of these kinds of things. God loves to work in paradoxes. Parables here are serving as almost a verbal paradox. I'm showing things to people who don't see. I'm telling things to people who don't hear. Again, it looks like wasted seed, doesn't it? And even if you take verse 12 by itself, it looks pretty harsh. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. If you looked at that verse just by itself, you would think, boy, God is a hard taskmaster. But if you look at it in the, in the totality of the other verses, verse 12 is a reality not because God is a stingy giver. Verse 12 is occurring because the choices of the receiver. And there are practical illustrations all over Scripture. Matthew Henry does one that I like. He noted that the pillar of fire was given as a light to Israel, but the pillar of fire also served as confusion and darkness to Egypt. Beautiful illustration in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
And of course, Romans 24, 1, 24 through 28, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. And get this, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And, re- and here's the key part of that. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's just kind of a, a life lesson, a normal occurrence, if you just look close enough, that in many ways the means that we use to gratify the sin in our life also carries with it the means of our own punishment, our own penalty good steady diet of Big big Macs, you're going to be visiting the heart doctor before too long. You get your satisfaction and your highs and lows from drugs. It'll lead you to a high in the short term. It can lead you to death in the long term. All of these things taken together, these practical illustrations, the things mentioned in Romans and these other passages, they show kind of a built-in divine justice mechanism. And here, that's exactly what you're seeing, the parables serving in this purpose. I love the way that one of these commentaries worded it. Because they were willfully blind, they became judicially blind. This is how the commentator put it. They didn't have a love for the truth, so they would not get the light of the truth. They professed to see, but truth incarnate stood before them, and they refused to see him. They professed to hear his word, but the living word was in their midst, and they refused to obey him. To paraphrase it, they lost the capacity to understand by their own willful, sinful choices. I'm always fascinating with the passages that deal with the hardening of heart, particularly where Pharaoh is concerned. God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 4.21 and Exodus 7.3. But he also says in Exodus 8.32 and 9.34, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's this back and forth between Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. This back and forth, this tension, this willful disobedience, and the, and the penalty for it being God is giving him direct, exactly what he asked for. He wants to be disobedient. I'm going to honor that. It's not his desire, but that's how he chooses to work. You know what the irony is in all of this? Think, look, at, look at what they were saying about Israel. Seeing they have eyes, but they do not see. Hearing they do not hear. Think about what the besetting sin of Israel was all throughout their history. What is the one thing that hammered over and over and over again? Idolatry. And just it's just fascinating. In my Old Testament reading, I came across that wonderful passage that says, and, that, and I'm summarizing it this way, it says, 
these people are just foolish. They take something made from their own hands and they fashion it in an image. They give it ears, but but it can't hear. Gives it a mouth, but it can't speak. Gives it eyes, but it cannot see. And what's Jesus saying in this parable about these people? They have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, and they don't hear. Lips that can't speak. They've become their own idol. They've become the thing that they worshiped. And trace it back, isn't that really the original sin? What was it the devil tempted Eve with? He said, if you eat the fruit, you can open your eyes and you can be as God. Bottom line, they had turned into their own idol. They became what they worshiped. So in verses 18 and 23, we see the abundance of the fruit. And that, that's really hammered forth this, in terms of multiplication. In verses 24 through 20, or 43, we're seeing the authenticity of the fruit. We're seeing the famous parable where the enemy sows tares among the wheat. Unger's commentary calls tares bearded darnel which is a poisonous grass that's almost indistinguishable from wheat when growing, but it's very evident when it's harvest. I don't want to keep saying bearded darnel throughout all of this, so let's just summarize it. Let's just call it what it is, weeds. Let's just call them weeds just for the sake of argument to keep with our suburban lawn analogy, remember. One of the things that always frustrates me is when when lawn mowing season occurs and I'm looking out and I'm not seeing a harvest of grass, I'm seeing weeds. I'm, and I'm stuck not cutting grass, I'm whacking weeds, and I do not like to whack weeds. But I, the weeds don't come up until, until I see the little heads, and that's exactly where we're at at this point. Remember at the beginning of this when I said that this was like ordering steak and getting a, getting a steer? Well, we're going to rope three or four parables, and we're going to ride that steer rodeo style, so hang on with me. We're going to look at this parable and we're going to look at the mustard seed and the leaven parable, and we're going to take them all together. And this is where I'm going to digress a little bit from where you, what you heard in Sunday school this morning. It's common to separate these parables and, and take them individually. And certainly you can't, there is a, a way that you can do that, obviously. Certainly the kingdom, as those parables seem to point out, was built on small things, The history of the church bears that out. Twelve people empowered by God in the Roman Empire falls. We can see the kingdom of God beginning in terms of small things. And you can even take the analogy that leaven, which is normally... You remember the part in in Acts where, where where Jesus tells Peter, do not call unclean the things which God declares clean... And here we're talking about parable, the parable of leaven being used in a positive sense. Could be we're the Gentiles. Could be we're the leaven. We've been made clean. It could be from that small beginning of leaven being used in a positive sense that we're, that we're seeing kind of a forerunner of what Peter was being told by Jesus. All of that being plausible. There's actually another set of thought to this. And bear with me, because when I, first, when I first heard this teaching, I was a little bit eh, skeptical. But what, the more I look at these parables, the more it makes sense to me not to look at them individually, 
but to take these, these particular parables and look at them as one unit building on a common theme. The problem with using leaven is almost throughout Scripture, without exception, leaven always tends to symbolize evil, and it was certainly never allowed in Jewish worship. So it would seem kind of strange if Jesus was comparing the kingdom of heaven to leaven, but it makes more sense if you're developing a common theme of the enemy sowing something evil within something good. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the admonition to the church was to purge out the old leaven and to, and, to, and to be unleavened. It doesn't say in that passage that the old leaven is to be replaced with fresh leaven. It simply says we're to remain unleavened. The idea being something else is going to end up being the, the leavening agent for us, and it won't be old leaven. It's going to be Christ. What of the mustard seed? How does that seem to fit into all of that? Remember in the verses it says that Jesus said that the birds of the air would nest there. But think about it, where did we see our birds prior in this parable? We saw them in verse 4. What were the birds doing in verse 4? They were snatching away the word that had been implanted. If you take these together as a whole, Jesus is cautioning us not to associate great, massive growth to necessarily equate with spiritual growth. Not all that is harvested is wheat. The specific grace of God manifested in this kind of growth is going to attract those that are tares and those that are, that are wheat. Just like God reigned the common grace that I talked about earlier just as he rained that common grace upon us all, that specific grace is also going to attract tares as well as, as wheat. In the context of this chapter, it's talking about end times. But we've already seen some modern examples. Major leaders of megachurches not only renouncing their pulpits, but renouncing their faith as well. Musical artists right after the other who sing of the grace of God now coming up and saying, you know, we were just singing to market to a particular audience. We don't really believe it. We never did really believe it. It was just money for us. It was just royalties. The one that I, a, a personal mentor of mine, probably if I had to make a list of top three pastors that were influential in my life, not only renounced his ministry, but renounced Jesus as Messiah. That was a tough one personally for me. The one example I like to, to cite a lot in that area too, just about everyone in this room has heard of Billy Graham. There's, there's another name that you probably haven't heard of. There's a man named William Templeton. William Templeton was an associate of Billy Graham. As a matter of fact, Templeton was referred to as the Canadian Billy Graham. And there are even those who said that, that uh, who heard Templeton preached said he was a better preacher than William Templeton. Templeton not only renounced his faith, he became an active professing atheist. And it was interesting, I remember a quote that he made. He says, um, 
I no longer believe in, in God. I'm not saying I'm happy about that, but I've never felt so free. What a contradictory... Think of the contradictions just weaving throughout that statement. There's a part of them that still recognizes truth, but actively pursues to deny truth. When I was specifically reading the parable of the wheat and the tares, and this is how I had to approach this, because there's just so much in this chapter, the only way I could think to try and lasso some sort of a consistent theme was to just read it and just make comments and ask questions. Here's one of the most difficult questions I have. Isn't a tear always a tear, no matter where it's planted? That's a troublesome kind of a question to ask. Think of the implications about that. Think of how the implications of that would be in terms of the workings of God. It would almost reduce God to being sort of, a, well, you know, I've set things in motion like a clock, so we'll just let things play out on their own. This is where it's helpful not to let analogies do too much. Because then I begin to think of a major tear in the New Testament. Does the name Saul of Tarsus ring any bells to you? When Paul persecuted the church, was he functioning as wheat? Or was he not a pear, a tear? Did he remain a tear through that? Tears in nature, a tear is a tear is a tear. But the analogy ends with nature. The supernatural can make a tear and change it into wheat. It can change a Saul of Tarsus into an Apostle Paul. Before we leave that parable, verse 37 is worth a mention. Jesus refers to himself there as the Son of Man. His most common way to refer to himself I love how the title that he chooses to identify himself with the most is the one that identifies with us in our humanness. And yet, as Daniel 7.13 reminds us, the Messiah is called the Son of God. The Jews knew that all too well. Luke 22.69, Jesus telling the Sanhedrin, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Father. And here's how the Sanhedrin replied to that. Art thou then the son of, not man, he said, art thou then the son of God? Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. The Sanhedrin came back with, are you then the son of God? They knew what he was saying. The nice thing about this, this passage is I, can't, I don't need to go into a lot of detail about all of the uh, interpretations because Jesus very helpfully interprets them for us without a, a lot of need for commentary. I don't think I can improve on the Son of God. So I'm simply going to read verses 38 through 43. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The rest of this chapter talks about gather, the gathering of sheaves for, and, or gathering of the fish and separating the good and the bad. In the middle of all that, though, it talks about the parable of the pearl of great fo- price. And you know something? At first glance, it doesn't seem to fit with all the rest of them because the rest of these parables are all dealing with gathering and sorting the good from the bad, the bad fish from the good fish, the wheat from the tares, all of this. And right in the middle of this is the pearl of great price. So where does that fit in all of this? This is the best I can, I can figure from it. We're seeing at the very beginning that leaven as a form of evil can be representative of the devil sowing bad among the good. Tares being sowed as bad among wheat. You having a constant theme of small bad things being inserted in the middle of good. But right in the middle of this is a beautiful illustration of something beautiful being sown. Something beautiful in the midst of the ground that doesn't need to be cultivated. It needs to be searched. It needs to be valued so highly that you would give up everything because of its very preciousness. So I want you to see in this, in this parable that true fruit is abundant. True fruit is authentic. Its attractiveness attracts all. Just as the common grace of God is bestowed upon all, the specific grace of God can even attract tares, can even attract those who are not of the faith. And who knows, by the transforming power of, of Christ, A tear can be made wheat. A Saul of Tarsus can be made an Apostle Paul. Let me give you a little side note when you're looking at that. Getting back to my my wonderful lawn, because my family knows how much I love lawn work. You've heard the phrase labor of love. For me, it's a labor of loathe. L-O-A-T-H-E. This is my labor of loathe. But when I look upon my lawn, the front yard tends to be brown and crunchy, because between the trees, because between the trees that overshadow it and the lack of rain, it can be kind of brown and, and crunchy. The backyard, no matter what the weather is, tends to always be lush and green and beautiful. It's all one lawn, but it has different degrees of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is expressed in multiplication, and we saw that at the beginning of this parable but it's also expressed in quality. The fruits of the Spirit verses that we know so well, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, those deal with quality. The one thing that the enemy would like to do is tell you that the lack of fruit in some areas of your life means barrenness in all areas of your life. Do not listen to that individually. Do not listen to that church-wide. A lack of fruitfulness in one area does not equate barrenness in all. Don't fall into that that mistake. On a personal note, and I'll close with this, that the fruit is attractive because it gives off a beautiful aroma. When I'm I'm in my dad's grapevines that he used to have in the summertime to walk into that arbor and just smell the grapes, such a beautiful, beautiful smell. 
when I was riding with my grandfather in his peach truck in South Georgia, even when the peaches were unloaded, that smell of peaches lingered. I can't go into a grocery store and smell peaches and not think of that grocery truck. I want to give you a personal note, and this is the part where I tell you people what I really think of you. You guys smell. You really do. We've been here for three and a half years, and I'm thankful to finally get a public platform to tell you people what I think of you. I want you to brace yourselves now, because I'm not going to be pretty about it. I'm not going to be diplomatic. You're going to get it between the eyes. So hold on to your chairs. Here it comes. We love you people so much. You've loved on our family so much. The aroma of Christ in you has blessed us beyond words. I thought, thought of particularly when Rachel's prayer of blessing when she was graduating high school and what a moving experience that was. I walk into the aroma of the presence of Christ every Sunday with you people. I think if the qualifications for a deacon in the book of Acts were simply illustrated, they would simply put a picture of Dan, Daniel and Myra, and it'll just say, see Daniel and Myra with no other explanation. I look at J.J. and his passion for the youth in Awana. Over a supper table Thursday night, listening to Alyssa talking about her concern for a neighbor that doesn't know Christ. I look at Brian, misspelled Brian back there working the soundboard. You know, he's going to cut me off for that. <laughs> I see a quiet saint, the kind that stays in the... I don't see a green light. Hello. All right. He does. I love basset hounds. That's proof he's got a sense of humor. A dog made by a committee. That's what I call them. But anyway, this is the aroma that I breathe in. And those that are watching online who may not be a part of any church fellowship, I would, I would urge you, if you had the chance, come by and embrace the aroma that we embrace here every Sunday. If this, if this grove is not where God has you, we'll love you till you find a grove of your own to breathe in and enjoy the fruit. Here's the sobering notion in all of this. The seed was, plant, was thrown in four different places, but it only flourished in one. That tells me that the fruit is not going to be prevalent and prominent. I mourn the fact that my daughter is going to grow up in a post-Christian America. But in many ways, I'm envious of the opportunities that she has to show the beauty and the distinctiveness of Christ in a culture that grows darker and darker. The old cliche about the light dark shining brightest in the darkest places, that's going to apply. But for those of you watching online, come embrace the aroma. If you don't know Christ, it's like... It's like you're stopped up in allergy season in Tennessee. You can't breathe or smell anything. Embrace the cross. Enjoy the fruitfulness. Because he not only wants to save you, but to preserve you and to give you a life lived abundantly.
for his glory and your joy. Thank you.